National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a fantastic show for you today. We're going to talk about the U.S. National Security Council and some crises around the world. Our guest is Steve Andreessen, who's a national security consultant to the Nuclear Threat Initiative and its Global Nuclear Policy Program in Washington, D.C. He teaches courses on national security policy and crisis management in foreign affairs at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Steve served as Director for Defense Policy and Arms Control on the U.S. National Security Council at the White House from February of 1993 to January of 2001. He was the Principal Advisor on Strategic Policy, Nuclear Arms Control, and Missile Defense to the National Security Advisor and to the President. During the George H.W. Bush and Reagan administrations, Andreasen served in the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, dealing with a wide range of defense policy, arms control, nuclear weapons, and intelligence issues. As a presidential management fellow, he served as special assistant to Ambassador Paul Nietzsche in the U.S. State Department, focusing on strategic arms reduction talks, and as a foreign policy and defense legislative assistant in the office of U.S. Senator Al Gore, Jr., Andreessen received his Bachelor of Arts from Gustavus Adolphus College in 1984 and earned his Master of Arts from the Humphrey School in 1986. His articles and opinion pieces have been published in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the St. Paul Pioneer Press, the Boston Globe, and many other outlets. Steve Andreessen, welcome to National Security This Week. John, it's a pleasure to be here. You are in studio with us, which is really nice. It's uh, nice to make the drive down to Northfield and to uh, get back into southern Minnesota. <laughs> well, we're glad you were able to join us today. Uh, it was uh, took us a little, little time to organize the, the date, but uh, I'm glad we were able finally to get this together. I've been looking forward to the show for a long time. You have yes, a, have I. Thank you, you. You, you have a tremendous reputation, professional reputation. Uh, Steve, let me begin uh, today's show by asking you what attracted you to a career in the national security arena. I mean, did, was it your undergraduate studies at Gustavus Adolphus in St. Peter? Uh, you earned a master's at, uh, at the Humphrey School. Uh, clearly, you had some interest in this area. What was it that brought you into the kind of the national security uh, world? And, and, and clearly, there's something that uh, attracted you to this field. Uh, you applied to the State Department and served some, some really interesting positions in, in, uh, in the national security arena. Well, even earlier than... Gustavus Adolphus College. Uh, I grew up in Richfield. Okay. And my father uh, served in the Korean War. And I remember growing up being fascinated by his experience, not only serving in the military, uh, but also just serving overseas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at that time, uh, we got our international news uh, from the News Weeklies, uh, Time and Newsweek. Mm-hmm. And my parents always, uh, how should I say, ensured that we had those magazines lying around the house. And that was really my first exposure, you know, and interest to things happening, you know, outside the living room and, and outside of school. Um, 
So I ended up uh, going down to Gustavus uh, for four years after graduating from Ridgefield High School uh, and, uh, you know, had the classic liberal arts education. Um, I, you know, ended up uh, with a major in political science, but minored in economics and English and biology. Okay. <laughs> and really made a late break for my interest in government and national security. And uh, went right to the Humphrey School after I graduated okay. and uh, ended up focusing on national security and foreign policy there. Was their program at, at the Humphrey School at the time really strong on the on the global public policy side? So to be honest, um, seems like only yesterday, but this was uh, back in 1984 to 1986. And uh, they had two or three uh, people at the Humphrey School who were outstanding in national security and foreign policy. Uh, the dean of the school uh, was a gentleman by the name of Harlan Cleveland, who served in the Kennedy administration and actually, for example, served uh, and supported the XCOM during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he was an interesting asset uh, yeah. at the Humphrey School. Yeah. But two professors, uh, one of whom just retired, uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Cooterly, who uh, headed up their international econ and trade program. And then John Brandle, who unfortunately passed away uh, a few years back, but John uh, served in the Pentagon. He was one of Robert McNamara's whiz kids mm. uh, during the Vietnam era. So they had you know, two or three people who were very strong. But I did a lot of my coursework in other departments at the University of Minnesota. I took a lot of courses from the econ department uh, and also uh, from the political science department. It's amazing to me how much uh, economic considerations drive national security decision-making. Uh, so that makes you know great sense to me that you spent a lot of time taking those courses. So what was it that uh, that advanced you out to Washington D.C. in this uh, career that you started in the national security world? Yeah, well, uh, it was uh, a fortuitous elevator ride <laughs> in my case. In between my uh, first and second year at the Humphrey School, I mentioned Bob Cordley, who was a professor at the Humphrey School. And I was down that summer. At that time, they were located in the Social Sciences Tower. After my first year, they moved to what is now the Humphrey Center. But uh, I went down and, and got in the elevator on the first floor to go up to the ninth floor, which is where the Humphrey School was. And, and Bob Cooterly got on the elevator with me. And he said to me, uh, are you familiar with the presidential management, at that time, internship, now fellowship program? And I, I said, no, I, I hadn't heard of it. And he said, uh, you should really apply for that. And the door opened on the ninth floor, and Bob walked out, and <laughs> I decided that uh, that was sound advice, even though I had never heard of the program before. So long story short, I ended up the fall of my second year at the Humphrey School applying to be a presidential management intern okay. and was accepted in the program uh, in the spring of my second year. And ended up going to Washington, D.C. as a presidential management intern um, with a, a, how should I say, a short break. I had been selected as a presidential management intern in April or May that spring of, of 1986 and decided that before getting a position, because it doesn't guarantee you a job in the federal government, what the program is is the federal government still today select a couple hundred of people out of graduate programs and law schools and public health programs to be hired into the federal government directly mm -hmm. 
without going through the civil service hiring procedures, but you have to find a job. They don't just give you one. But uh, although I had gone out to Washington a couple of times to see if I could uh, secure a job uh, before I graduated, I didn't, and decided that I would travel uh, my first trip overseas. So I went to Australia, New Zealand, and Fiji in the summer of 86 and came back and, and then was hired by a gentleman by the name of Dick Clark, who some of your listeners might know, a uh, longtime national security expert and specialist, was very prominent in the 9-11 era, mm-hmm. post-9-11. And uh, Dick, at that time, was serving in the Intelligence Bureau of the State Department, and he hired me as a presidential management fellow. All right. So you started at, at INR at State. I did. So the Intelligence and Research Bureau, or INR as you call it, um, was my home bureau. And I served there six months doing analysis on then arms control negotiations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It was the last two years of the Reagan era. But one of the great things about the Presidential Management Now Fellowship Program, or PMF program, still today, is you can do rotations. Mm. And Dick was very insistent that all of the PMFs he hired, and there were four or five of us, do rotations during our two years as a Presidential Management Fellow. So after my six months in uh, the Intelligence Bureau working as an arms control analyst, I then did a rotation working for a then young senator uh, at the age of 39 who was running for president the first time, Al Gore. So I went up to his Senate staff and worked there for six months. And then I came back to the department and worked for really a legend in the U.S. national security bureaucracy, a gentleman by the name of Paul Nitza, Mm who at that time was President Reagan's uh, special advisor on arms control. So uh, I mentioned in the opening, and, and we've discussed a little bit here, uh, the Bureau of Political Military Affairs and, and at the Department of State and also the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, or INR as it's called. Can you explain to our audience exactly what those two uh, bureaus are? Yeah, so uh, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research uh, is a unique bureau in the department It's really a mini-state department within the department because it's organized as a global uh, intelligence uh, office, so it includes both regional uh, and functional offices. I worked in the office that was a functional office working on arms control negotiations, but they had regional offices working on Europe and Asia and Latin America, et cetera. And, the, and, and by functional, what we mean is it's a global issue, right? It's, it's not tied to any one specific country or region. It's really an issue that, that crosses borders. Exactly. So transnational threats, uh, global economic issues, um, issues associated with terrorism, et cetera, were dealt with as functional issues as opposed to, you know, regional-specific issues. Mm-hmm. Um And so, you know, the INR Bureau is unique because it's unique within the department. It's the largest bureau within the Department of State, true when I was there, I think still true today. It's staffed with about half Foreign Service officers, which staff most of the State Department, but also civil service officers. And I was a career civil servant as a presidential management fellow, and then later I converted to the career civil service. And... um, you know, it's a member of the intelligence community. So there's 15 or 16 different agencies spread across government who are members of the intelligence community. And INR, you know, has a vote at the table. It's a member of the community, just like the CIA yeah. or the military intelligence services. Um, and uh, in that sense, it's a great place to get a sense as to what's happening in U.S. national security and foreign policy. 
The Bureau of Political Military Affairs, also a functional bureau, is a policy bureau. It's not an intelligence entity. So this is the bureau in the Department of State that, for example, did arms control negotiations. And the Political Military Affairs Bureau is where I spent, after my first two years in government, my second four years, which basically was the first Bush administration. The gentleman who hired me in the Intelligence Bureau, Dick Clark, was asked uh, to head the Bureau of Political Military Affairs during the first Bush administration. George H.W. Bush. Exactly. And he asked me to uh, come work with him uh, in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. So I transitioned from the Intelligence Bureau to the Bureau of Political Military Affairs and went from intelligence to policy. Okay. And and I would say, uh, so I was a career intelligence officer in the Navy, had many dealings with INR. Uh, it was, it's my opinion that some of the best geopolitical analysts, intel analysts in the entire intelligence community, all now 18 members uh, with the Space Force just added their own uh, intelligence uh, branch uh, to the to the U.S. Space Force. And so they now are 18 members of the intel community. But INR at state had some of the best analysts in the entire community. Really fantastic. So at the risk of being a homer, <laughs> uh, I, I talk about INR the way I talk about the Minnesota Vikings, <laughs> okay. uh, which is they can you know literally do no wrong uh, in terms of uh, my passions and, and my fandom. But uh, I agree with you. The Intelligence and Research Bureau uh, is really extraordinary. Uh, within the department, uh, when I started there, George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State, had yeah. tremendous trust and confidence. It was led by a career ambassador, a gentleman by the name of Morta Bromowitz, who was one of the few career senior foreign service officers at the time. Uh, there were only three or four of them uh, who reached that level of service. And the analysts were just outstanding. So it was a great place to start, as is the intelligence community. I tell my students... I now teach at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota that the best place they can start their career in national security and foreign policy is serving in intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would agree. I'd agree. Uh, We have uh, one other question I want to get to before we take a quick break. Uh, Last question for this segment. What exactly is the National Security Council? Let's pivot over to that. Uh, Why why was it established uh, and when? Uh, What does it do and how does it support the president of the United States? So the National Security Council, or NSC as it is uh, known uh, by acronym, uh, actually was created uh, in 1947 after World War II in something called the National Security Act, uh, which also unified the Department of Defense and created the Central Intelligence Agency. So it wasn't just legislation focused on creating the NSC. It actually was legislation that really reorganize the national security community to deal with post-World War II uh, challenges. And the NSC uh, was set up then and is meant still today uh, to be the central entity within the U.S. government for coordinating uh, U.S. national security and foreign policy. Uh, It has a few statutory members who serve on the National Security Council, the president, the vice president, and a few other cabinet members Uh, It then also has a NSC staff. So the National Security Council uh, is different than the National Security Council staff, uh, but the staff basically supports the council and supports the president. So in brief, we can go into this in more detail. And we will. (laughs) Yeah. The the NSC really uh, came into its own during the Kennedy administration. 
Uh, it existed uh, under Presidents Truman and Eisenhower, and they both certainly used the NSC staff, but it was really Kennedy who organized the staff uh, in a way that it's still organized today uh, with a national security advisor, a deputy national security advisor, and then professional staff who, again, to use the terms we were using previously, cover regions and functions uh, relating to U.S. national security and foreign policy. Okay. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Steve Andreessen, who teaches at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing the U.S. National Security Council and how to deal with international crises. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Steve, let's get a little more depth on the National Security Council. I've always found that organization to be absolutely fascinating, and and really more the staff than the the statutory uh, members. Uh, They they make the decisions, but all of the work that has to go in on the staff side is what has always fascinated me. Now, you served as a staff member on the National Security Council staff. What what does the day-to-day work look like uh, on the National Security Council staff? What are you doing on a daily basis to create policy and implement strategy in support of American national security interests? I would, I would imagine the, the interagency process is, is vitally important to, to these efforts, efforts. Can you give us sort of a sense of how the president establishes national security policy objectives and how the National Security Council staff uh, helps to implement those policies? So beginning somewhat tongue-in-cheek, uh, <laughs> the best description of the NSC staff was by one of my colleagues. Uh, I worked on the NSC staff all eight years of the Clinton-Gore administration, so from 1993 to 2001. And he said once that the NSC staff was a little bit like being assigned to the Soviet gulag. (laughs) It was prolonged periods of sleep deprivation uh, punctuated by short, intense interrogations. And uh, really, all of that was true. But the NSC staff is really the center of U.S. national security and foreign policy making. And uh, what it is supposed to do and what it does when it's working well is primarily two functions. Uh, One is to coordinate. uh, That is to coordinate uh, U.S. national security and foreign policy, uh, including the agencies involved, which include a whole host of agencies, the State Department, the Defense Department, the military services, the intelligence community, Department of Energy, Department of Treasury, now Homeland Security, they're all part of the U.S. National Security Foreign Policy bureaucracy. And someone has to coordinate their efforts in achieving various goals and objectives, or at least there should be someone doing that. And the NSC is really meant to be, first and foremost, the entity within the U.S. government that coordinates. And uh, the second thing it needs to do Again, if it's functioning uh, as it's intended and if it's uh, doing what it should be doing is to be a disciplinarian. Uh, You can imagine that in national security and foreign policy across the U.S. government, there has to be an entity that's basically watching to make sure that everyone's doing what the president wants them to be doing. And if they're not, that they can actually be held to account. Mm -hmm. So uh, coordinator and disciplinarian are the two major functions of the NSC staff. There's other functions that the the staff undertakes. I mean, the NSC staff is relatively small um, compared to other departments and agencies. During the Clinton era, we had about 100 uh, professional staff, that is, 
um, what we called senior directors and directors who staff the various regional and functional you know, uh, offices of the NSC. Uh, and then we had about 100 support staff. So the entire organization was about 200 people, okay. which is relatively small yeah, as U.S. departments and agencies go. That's not big. <laughs> uh, and we had, for example, in my office, the Office of Defense Policy and Arms Control. We were one of the larger offices, and we only had six officers, you know, a senior director and, and five directors. So it's a relatively small organization. But you end up doing a lot of things within the rubric of being the coordinator and the disciplinarian. Uh, among other things, you're the personal staff of the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, those of you who've been to Washington know that the NSC staff is located in what we called at the time the old executive office building, which is inside the White House complex. It's right across from the West Wing. And the National Security Advisor actually has his or her office in the West Wing. So it's very much the president's personal staff on national security and foreign policy. And you end up uh, not only being the coordinator and the disciplinarian, but also the advisor. So you uh, manage the interagency process on various policies that you're responsible for, but you also provide the president advice and counsel, uh, either directly or through the national security advisor. So it's always been my impression that uh, on the National Security Council staff side of things, you have people who, who uh, are experts in their areas. They have their finger on the pulse of what's happening uh, across the intelligence community as all of that information, the analytical work is coming in to keep them updated on what's happening with global affairs. Uh, and they, in their advice to the president, are advocating uh, for certain policy options. And once the president has decided on those policy options, they are then responsible for implementing those policy pursuits uh, across the interagency process. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's a, a very good description. I mean, the NSC staff, much to the annoyance of certain <laughs> departments and agencies, in particular the State Department, uh, does have a view. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in theory, and actually in the Eisenhower administration, uh, that was probably the time where the staff um, uh, primarily was a coordinator, and the president still relied on cabinet secretaries, for example, the Secretary of State. Um, in his era, uh, John Foster Dulles, you know, was a principal actor on national security and foreign policy, and the national security advisor was much less visible, much less active, and much less independent. Uh, that changed in the Kennedy era. And um, now both the National Security Advisor, uh, the deputy, and the staff is called upon uh, and expected to provide uh, not just uh, the process of coordination, but also its own independent recommendations and is called upon to help develop policy options um, and also, of course, crucially, once the president makes a decision, to make sure that those decisions are being implemented. So, I mean, the staff is really uh, active across the board. Um, it's active as a coordinator. Uh, it's active in terms of providing inputs to the policy development process, uh, and it's very active in policy implementation. The staffing of the staff, I should just say, is, is, is also quite interesting. 
in my era, I would say about two-thirds of the staff was career uh, officers, uh, foreign service officers, civil service officers, military officers, intelligence officers, who were asked to do rotations or details of approximately a year to two years on the NSC staff. About a third of the staff were political appointees, but the staff was nonpartisan. Uh, The two national security advisors I served under under President Clinton, uh, Tony Lake and Sandy Berger, uh, made that clear at every turn that we did not do politics. Right. Uh, we were a nonpartisan staff. Uh, and, and that is the way the staff really should function. So it has deep expertise called upon across the government, nonpartisan expertise. And even the political appointees, you know, are very much meant to serve in a nonpartisan capacity. And, and I would I would just say that uh, you know America traditionally up and up until probably nine eleven uh, we we really practiced a lot of strategic patience about what was happening out there in the world and the policy implementation was very thoughtful it was very driven by uh, you know um, um, our differences political differences domestically stop at our shores and everything that's overseas we collaborate on regardless of political party it was very, very nonpartisan. Uh, 9-11 sort of changed it from a, uh, a diplomacy-centric or economic-centric approach with strategic patience more to a, a, a military-heavy. And then, of course, you know, I think we'll – I'd like to get into a little bit later with you, but we got a little politicized, unfortunately, in our pursuits of American national security interests. So I, you know, agree with you generally, John. I mean, 9-11 changed so many things, you know – uh, across our society and across our government. And uh, in my 14 years in government, I served uh, two years in the Reagan administration, a Republican administration, yeah. then four years under the first President Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, also Republican, mm-hmm. and then eight years under uh, the Clinton-Gore administration, uh, Democrats. And the structure of the National Security Council staff, but also how the government operated. I served with many of the same people uh, in all of those capacities. Right. Uh, we were all career civil service or military service or intelligence service, yeah. and we crossed paths you know, throughout those 14 years. Um, 9-11 started to change uh, some of that organization, in part because the government was focused and uh, really has been for much of the past 20 years on fighting and winning uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. Uh, And uh, that tends to skew how things are done. And that began in the second Bush administration, in part because of the personalities that were engaged, um, who quite frankly in the first Bush term simply didn't get along that well. And the National Security Council didn't do what I said it could and should do uh, under Condoleezza Rice um, the first four years. And she had a difficult time because, you know, she was serving with some real titans, uh, Colin Powell at state, Don Rumsfeld at defense, uh, Dick Cheney as vice president. Right. And she had a hard time being the coordinator and the disciplinarian (laughs) of that group. Right, yeah. Uh, And so that started to change things. And, and, uh, the Obama administration brought it back to what I would say was more the norm. Uh, one of Obama's national security advisors, Susan Rice, I served with on the Clinton-era staff. She was a director working for Dick Clark, actually, hmm. 
people at that time who uh, had gone to the NSC. I should add Tony Blinken was also an alumni of that staff back in the day. Um, but then it all changed under the Trump administration in terms of how the NSC was set up and how it functioned or didn't function. And I would argue that, you know, we're still recovering from that four years. Yeah. I do want to return to some more discussions on the National Security Council staff and the function of the National Security Council. We have to take just a, a short, uh, about a minute break uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at National Security This Week. Our guest today is Steve Andreessen. Uh, Steve, how has the, the composition of the National Security Council staff, you, we were just discussing that before we went to break. Uh, I know it kind of ebbs and flows as far as numbers. It got big during the Obama administration, is, right? is that right? And then kind of swung back a little bit under the Trump administration. Do you know where it's at today with the Biden administration as far as size goes? Yeah, so in general, the size of the NSC staff has grown considerably since the Kennedy administration. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kennedy NSC staff uh, probably had between 15 and 20 uh, staff. Uh, and as I said, during the Clinton era, uh, there were five times that number of professional staff, about 100. Um, the staff uh, grew. Um, uh, actually, under both the uh, second Bush administration and the Obama administration. And part of that was because the functions of the staff grew. I mean, in the Clinton era, we actually added uh, international economics to the NSC structure. Um, and as different uh, issues and challenges uh, became more prevalent in U.S. national security and foreign policy, the staff grew you know, to deal with those uh, divergent and desperate issues. So um, I think the staff probably reached its peak in size under the Obama administration. I want to say it was about 250 or 300. Um, it was uh, reduced uh, for a whole host of reasons under the Trump presidency. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are under the Biden staff. Uh, my sense is it's smaller than the Obama staff but probably larger than the Clinton staff. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a document that's a, that Congress requires the president to produce. It's supposed to be done every year, the National Security Strategy. Uh, I believe the first one was mandated under the uh, Reagan administration, first year of the Reagan administration. And uh, the Reagan and, and Bush administrations, even, even the Clinton administration, produced them pretty regularly, annually. That has fallen off now. Most administrations get away with saying, well, the one we did last year is the same one for this year and the one after that. What is the national security strategy? Yeah, so the national security strategy is required by statute. And uh, you're right in terms of how it has evolved uh, since the requirement for a national security strategy. Uh, most administrations produce one uh, during a term. So if you have a two-term president, you usually see two national security strategies, uh, that is, that are done from A to Z. Um, 
So my recollection in the Clinton era is that we had two national security strategies that were done, you know, as I say, kind of from A to Z. Uh, it's meant to be a comprehensive look at U.S. national security, foreign and defense policy, and can actually be a window on how any specific administration views its priorities and also its approach. Uh, for example, uh, the first uh, national security strategy in the second Bush administration uh, that was produced actually articulated a post-9-11 strategy of preventive war and preemption uh, and a rationale for it that was later used as a template for the war in Iraq. Uh, so you can read the national security strategies as, as, a, as I say, kind of a window into how the administration is prioritizing and how it is approaching uh, various issues and problems. As a operational document, uh, this won't surprise you, John, it, it actually, other than setting broad objectives and goals that do have an impact, you know, uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, oftentimes is somewhat disconnected from the grand strategies that are articulated even under the best of intentions. Uh, by any administration. Yeah, I, I've always looked at the national security strategy as, as it's a document that helps the administration communicate not only internally to American citizens and and to the Congress, frankly, about what it is the administration believes uh, they want to accomplish for national security objectives, but perhaps more importantly, a way to communicate where the administration stands with our allies and friends and even potential adversaries around the world. So that is exactly on point. Uh, that is what the national security strategy is not only meant to do, but often does. Uh, in the Clinton era, it was my office, the Office of Defense Policy and Arms Control, that coordinated the preparation of the U.S. national security strategy. In fact, we had a Navy captain uh, who uh, supervised that process during the first term, uh, who later went on to be a, a three-star admiral and a member of Congress from Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. a gentleman by the name of Joe Sestak. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it was a massive effort. I mean, uh, Joe basically was in the gulag uh, <laughs> working on the uh, national security strategy. Uh, not a lot of sleep uh, and some short, intense interrogations. <laughs> And, of course, coordinating a document like that government-wide uh, is a massive undertaking. Uh, so what's the impact uh, for the national security strategy on the other de the departments in the executive branch, like DOD or state? I mean, what do they take from that document, that master document? So it can certainly, again, be an indication after an interagency process of review as to uh, – how the president, the vice president, and the administration uh, view its priorities. So it can be significant in that it is not only, as you say, read by the public, but read by people working within the government. Um, it's not the most uh, significant or operational document, I'll just say, in that uh, most administrations use two tools. Uh, that are more relevant to the development and execution of U.S. national security and foreign policy. Uh, they have slightly different names for these tools, but you can find them uh, in any administration and in any presidential library. They're the Presidential Review Directive, uh, which is usually signed by the National Security Advisor on a topic. 
so, for example, in the first year of the Clinton administration, I supervised four presidential review directives, uh, one on our policy on denuclearizing the states of the former Soviet Union and bringing the strategic nuclear arms agreements concluded in the previous administration into force, mm-hmm. uh, one on U.S. policy on nuclear testing and the negotiation of a comprehensive test ban treaty, uh, one on our policy on missile defense and the anti-ballistic missile treaty, and one looking at arms control, specifically nuclear arms control, beyond the treaties that had been agreed up to that point. And those reviews are interagency reviews that are conducted under the review directive, which identifies basically the questions that need to be answered to inform the analysis and then identifies options to be reviewed. Mm. And that process goes from the working level, uh, coordinated by the NSC staff, up to the deputies, that is, deputies in various departments and agencies, and the principals, that is, the cabinet secretaries, before it goes to the president. And when that process concludes, the president almost always signs what is known, again, as a presidential decision directive. Mm, Yep. And those presidential decision directives, or PDDs, as we called them in the Clinton era, those are really the Bible, so to speak. Those are the sacred texts and have much more cachet and currency within the government than the national security strategy writ large. Yeah. I've always kind of marveled at the amount of time and energy that seems to be put into crafting the national security strategy and how uh, the press is always saying, well, why, why are you delayed on this? Why, are you, why haven't you published this? And it, it, the document itself doesn't really provide that much guidance for the executive branch for what it is they're actually going to do. It's really true. As I say, it's not, in that sense, an operational document. Yeah. It provides a snapshot uh, of priorities. Uh, and by the way, that snapshot can then be reflected in the presidential reviews that are undertaken and the more operational presidential decision directives that the president ultimately signs. But uh, if you're going to an interagency meeting, throwing down the national security strategy uh, on the table oftentimes doesn't impress a lot of people. Yeah. Bringing the presidential decision directive that has been signed does. Because that that gives clear guidance as to what the president wants to see happen. Exactly. Uh, Let's pivot over to some, uh, to the global events. Uh, I I absolutely want to take advantage of your knowledge and experience in this, uh, in this realm. Uh, In the run-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was pretty clear that the the Biden administration uh, was really well supported by the U.S. intelligence community. And they made the decision to share some fairly sensitive intelligence uh, with American allies and friends around the world, and and frankly, with the public, with the press, uh, global press. Uh, They built consensus, the administration did, among friendly nations, uh, and and there was a resolve to stand against uh, Russia. And then once the Russians had invaded to provide significant assistance, including significant lethal assistance to Ukraine to defend uh, their territory. That commitment uh, to to Ukraine continues to stand, and and I will say for now, uh, because we always know that you know politics changes over time. Uh, hopefully, enough people realize that this you know it's in America's vital American national security interests, at least from my perspective, uh, to defeat Vladimir Putin's plan uh, to take over Ukraine. Uh, based on your experience, how, how profoundly different is the Biden administration's playbook uh, to release this level of information uh, that they that they did in the run up to the invasion? after the invasion, what they continue to do today to unmask Vladimir Putin's plans. Uh, how how different is that con- con- considering what we've seen in the past? And, and, and well, let's start there, and I, I have probably have some follow-up questions for you. So I think historians are going to look back at the Biden administration's 
approach to intelligence sharing in the run-up to the war in Ukraine. And it will be one of the more remarkable things that transpired during the first Biden term. Now, it's not unprecedented. And in fact, the U.S. government uh, has often shared intelligence, in particular with its closest allies. That's usually done very privately and very quietly. A lot of times the sources and methods used to develop that intelligence are sensitive, and the intelligence community is therefore sensitive about exposing them in ways that uh, our potential adversaries or real adversaries might learn about our sources and methods and then basically cut them off, mm -hmm. uh, either uh, if they're technical sources or human sources. So a lot of that intelligence sharing is done quietly, and it's done in a classified format, and it hasn't been shared publicly. Now, there's been occasions when it has, and I would just point out, for example, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, President Kennedy uh, was made aware of uh, photographs taken by uh, U-2 spy planes over Cuba that initially exposed the missiles that the Soviet Union was deploying there. And he basically uh, sent representatives uh, of his government around to uh, share with our close allies, in particular in NATO, those photographs. Uh, however, they were also unveiled publicly by our ambassador to the United Nations, Adelaide Stevenson, right. uh, in a famous session of the <laughs> yeah. UN Security Council and General Assembly, where he unveiled those photographs, uh, which was quite striking at the time. Yeah. Uh, so it was really not the norm. Uh, I think what the Biden administration has done in the run-up to the invasion might turn out to be more the norm because it's proven to be quite effective. Mm -hmm. uh, not only did we share the intelligence privately uh, that uh, indicated that the Russians were planning to invade Ukraine, uh, beginning with the Ukrainians, who initially doubted that intelligence, but also our allies, uh, but we also uh, made it public. And uh, a number of things um, resulted from that. First of all, uh, I think it limited the options that uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government had in terms of what they were planning in the run-up to the invasion. Uh, they were planning a number of what we call false flag operations, where they were going to claim that they were being attacked you know, by Ukraine, and they were responding to an attack. And, you know, by exposing that as a tactic, it made it much less effective. It should also, however, be noted that it didn't stop no. Vladimir Putin <laughs> from invading right. Ukraine. Right. So, yeah. you know, its utility, I think, was proven to be significant, and I think more administrations will do the same in the future. You're going to see a lot more public sharing of intelligence uh, to try and shape the actions of foreign governments and expose what we know they might be trying to accomplish. Um, but again, I think we should be uh, somewhat careful to assume that it's a game changer. It yeah, didn't right. change the game in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I should also note that uh, it hasn't necessarily meant that all countries are on our side. Right. As you're seeing in this war in Ukraine over the past year, uh, we're still in a battle for the hearts and minds of many countries, in particular in the global south, mm -hmm. in terms of whose narrative to believe, uh, in terms of what's transpired in and around Ukraine. Yep. Uh, and the Russian narrative, which is filled with propaganda and lies in the case of what they've 
put forward in terms of their rationale for the invasion and what they've done, uh, nevertheless does resonate uh, even if the United States has changed its tactics in terms of how it's handling information. You know, you brought up uh, earlier in our discussion about the importance of of economics, economic considerations, global trade, and things like that. Uh, About a decade ago, we were talking about the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, as these rising economic powers uh, to be looked at for the future. Uh, Interestingly enough, the two countries that that don't seem to be coming down on America's side right now with regards to, you know, condemning Russia are India and Brazil. It's it's kind of a fascinating thing, and uh, I, I don't know where this goes from there. I, I want to pivot over to the Munich Security Conference. So you you recently attended the Munich Security Conference as a longtime attendee of that important event. What can you tell us about the the agenda, the security challenges and opportunities addressed by speakers and delegates, and and anything else you think people should know about what happened at this year's uh, Munich Conference? Uh, I, there really wasn't much good press coverage about that conference this year and what came from it. So the Munich Security Conference is really unique. It's uh, now uh, over 60 years uh, that the conference has been held. Um, And it's always been uh, put on by a private foundation. Uh, It's not an arm of the German government, uh, for example. And it's been designed over many decades to bring together... uh, primarily voices throughout the Euro-Atlantic region, uh, across Europe, uh, to discuss various issues, um, and is attended at very senior levels of government, presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers, defense ministers, national security advisors. Uh, A lot of governments have very large delegations uh, who attend Munich. And there's been a number of significant events that have happened there over the years, uh, And uh, at least now I'll highlight that in my time at Munich, uh, which goes back a little over 10 years, I've been going to the conference now since, I think, 2012, Um, the Russians have been represented at very senior levels. Uh, Vladimir Putin gave a very famous speech at the 2007 Munich Security Conference, where in some ways he laid out the template for how he saw Europe in terms of the enlargement of NATO and what it meant for Russia's security, uh, and in some ways telegraphed uh, some of the actions that he's taken recently. Uh, So it's been a very serious event, probably the most significant security conference globally uh, over that time, Uh, and by the way, has evolved now to include countries outside the Euro-Atlantic region. So uh, China is represented at the UNIC Security Conference, India is represented, a lot of African countries, uh, and not just regional, but also functional issues uh, like global health. Uh, The head of the WHO was at the conference this year, for example, so it's diversified. But I have to say, this year's conference really was a departure from the conferences that I've attended in the past and and the conferences that have been uh, held, you know, throughout the conference's history. Uh, in one significant way, which is the Russians were disinvited. Right. And uh, my own personal view is that was a mistake. Um, I think, you know, we benefit from hearing the arguments of our adversaries and forcing them to make them publicly. 
and exposing them to the light of day. That's diplomacy. <laughs> and, and, you know, to hear it publicly from leaders yeah. uh, is really when a lot of our publics pay attention. Uh, and we missed that opportunity at Munich. We didn't hear from the Russians at Munich. I don't think their case would have been all that compelling. Um, Lavrov recently was laughed off of a stage uh, a couple of weeks ago, but we should have given him the opportunity to be laughed off the Munich stage, uh, yes. and we didn't. Um, and by the way, uh, the conference, which is still uh, put together by a private foundation, um, this year, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, but it's worth noting, was much more of a conference organized in support of Ukraine. Yeah. It was not a single-issue conference, but that issue really dominated, and much of the conference agenda was organized that way. Uh, so that's a bit different. I wouldn't be surprised if the Russians, even if invited, don't show up at Munich again anytime soon. Uh, so we lose that opportunity for engagement, and we lose that opportunity for dialogue, because a lot of Munich... Um, uh, it's a mess. If you've ever been to the Munich Security Conference, it takes place in one hotel. Uh, there's about 1,000 attendees, although they've cut that back uh, to try and make it a little bit more manageable. And there's a major conference hall within the hotel where the speeches are given. But much of the diplomacy that takes place is basically who you bump into in the hallways and the elevators and the coffee houses and the restaurants. Um, and and those are important opportunities for engagement, and not having the Russians there, in particular at a time when, you know, we're at an unprecedented crisis in Euro-Atlantic security. We haven't seen anything like this, you know, really since the collapse of the Soviet Union and even decades before. Uh, I think that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, you, I mean, diplomacy only works if you're actually talking to each other, and, and I think uh, we have to move in the direction of... Uh, finding a way to end this. Uh, I, I personally think that the strategy is th that NATO has adopted. Maybe you can uh, give me your, your, your perspective on this, but I think that the strategy that NATO decided to adopt shortly after the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was that we were going to force the Russians to continue to invest more and more manpower and material into the fight and give the Ukrainians enough to resist and to defeat the Russians inside Ukraine, but not give the Ukrainians enough to throw the Russians out which creates a whole separate set of uh, opportunities for Putin to uh, take action. Uh, but he's invested himself. We've got him sort of trapped uh, in a uh, conundrum uh, that he can't get out of, and we want to make sure that he continues to suffer until the Russian people remove him from power. Would you agree with that strategy, or do I have that? Do, am I reading it right? So I think you've hit the major lines. Um, the quandary that we have now and by we, I include Ukraine first and foremost, but yeah. Ukraine's friends right. in Europe, and that includes the United States and it includes NATO, is how to stop the killing right. and end the fighting. Now, if you assume that Ukraine, uh, armed by NATO, can actually drive Russia from every inch of Ukrainian territory and Crimea, then uh, your answer to the question of when to stop the fighting is not until the Ukrainians have accomplished that. If you don't think 
that the Ukrainians are going to be capable of doing that and that either side is going to be able to achieve total victory. That is, the Russians are not going to be able to, as they hoped to do a year ago, right. uh, remove the government in Kiev and basically take over Ukraine. And if you don't believe that's now possible, and I don't, I don't yeah. think Russians can achieve that objective. Um, and if you don't think the Ukrainians are capable of driving the Russians out of every inch of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, then you have to conclude that the war ends uh, not on the battlefield, but around the diplomatic table. Right. But right now, the Russians and Ukrainians are not talking. Nope. They haven't spoken uh, since March of last year. And right now, uh, Ukraine's friends aren't encouraging them to talk. Um, Hubert Humphrey uh, uh, famously talked about uh, the difficulties of the peacemaker and how difficult it is for the first person to say, we need to stop and end the fighting. Um, and that's where we are right now in Ukraine. It's very difficult for a peacemaker to step forward and say, we should be focused on a cessation of hostilities so we can get around the diplomatic table so the fighting happens around the conference table and not on the battlefield. That's not where the two combatants are. No. Both Russia and Ukraine believe that they can still make significant gains on the battlefield. Uh, and until they conclude otherwise, it's going to be difficult to stop the war around the conference table. Yeah, the challenge, I think, is that uh, the Russians continue to signal uh, certain objectives, war, war objectives, that are diametrically opposed to what uh, President Zelensky uh, in Ukraine could ever possibly accept. Uh, on behalf of the Ukrainian people, and the Ukrainian people certainly don't don't want the status quo where it is right now. Uh, so it puts uh, all of the supporters of Ukraine in a difficult position because you want to make sure that Zelensky is the one that you're you're backing, that you know his voice is the one that is in the room. Uh, when he signals that he's willing to accept something different, then the international community that's been supporting Ukraine can probably back off a little bit. But uh, I don't think I don't see I don't see Putin changing his war objectives anytime soon. I think President Zelensky may be in the most difficult position in this conflict when it comes to diplomacy. Um, the rhetoric of President Zelensky and the Ukrainian government is one of total victory, uh, driving the Russians out of every inch of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. And by the way, uh, they've actually gained back about half of the territory, right. roughly, uh, that the Russians gained in the opening months of the war. Uh, the Ukrainians have fought heroically and valiantly and effectively. And my guess is they're going to make continuing gains on the battlefield. But at some point, um, both sides may reach a point of exhaustion. Uh, this war is costing both sides a tremendous amount in terms of men, women, material, civilian casualties, in particular on the Ukrainian side, obviously. Um, and uh, uh, the support that Ukraine is getting uh, from uh, NATO countries, the European Union, and the United States uh, is also uh, incredibly resource-intensive and costly. Yes. And so it's not clear that that status quo can continue. Uh, and and President Zelensky at some point may have to decide at what point he is going to transition from trying to achieve his objectives 
uh, not just on the battlefield, but at the conference table. Uh, I think it's an argument that he can make. In other words, he doesn't have to concede no. uh, the territory of Crimea. He doesn't have to concede any other inch of ground. Uh, but he might be able to agree to a cessation of hostilities and try and negotiate a more favorable end to the conflict than to fight his way to a more favorable end to the conflict. But it will be difficult for him to do that. Yeah, and the challenge, of course, is when you give, uh, say, the Russians the opportunity to breathe, uh, they have time to rearm and re-equip and train their troops better, and then it's a tougher opponent if you don't succeed at the, uh, at the diplomacy uh, angle, which is hard. So I'll just say in 60 seconds or less, there's going to be many different phases in ending this war. Right. Again, if you assume that neither side is going to achieve total victory, right. it will probably begin with a cessation of hostilities and transition to a more permanent ceasefire. Uh, that will probably be a complica complicated process in and of itself, but also accompanied by an even more complicated process, which is how do you transition to a peace agreement where both sides feel secure and you don't face a situation where five years later, You're uh, again. <laughs> exactly, the conflict <laughs> yeah. has restarted. Right. Um, and that probably will involve security guarantees for Ukraine. Uh, I don't think it includes NATO membership, but they're going to want uh, a more, how should I say, secure situation. Uh, than they had prior to this war breaking out, first in 2014 and then again in 2022. Um, and the Russians are probably going to have to have some arrangement that they also believe is stable and sustainable uh, if we're going to diminish the prospects of a new fight. It can be done. Uh, I note that the model may be uh, something along the lines of what we've achieved on the Korean Peninsula, where we have an armistice, we're still waiting for a peace agreement. Right. Uh, but the large-scale fighting between the sides that my father participated in, uh, you know, hasn't happened now for uh, over 70 years. Right. Uh, Steve Andreessen, unfortunately, we are almost out of time today. I, I was hoping to get in and talk about a bunch of different crises around the world. Uh, maybe I could uh, ask you to come back again, uh, maybe over the summer or early fall, if you're available, and we can uh, continue on a conversation along those lines. I'd happy. I'd be really happy to do that. I mean, the one thing I wanted to talk to you about that we didn't get to is the war in Tigray in yeah. northern Ethiopia. Let, let's talk about that real yeah. quick before we, we we move on. Uh, where where do you see that that situation uh, unfolding? I know they just signed a sort of a peace uh, deal, but so many people think the largest war in the world the last two years has been the war in Ukraine. It's actually been in northern Ethiopia in the Tigray region. Uh, a conflict broke out uh, just after our presidential election in November of 2020, and basically uh, there has been a war in northern Ethiopia, a uh, conspiracy, really, between the government of Abiy Ahmed uh, and the government uh, led by President Isais in Eritrea uh, to crush the Tigray region, mm -hmm. uh, and the leaders of Tigray. Uh, the conflict has included uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and I would argue genocide. Uh, over a million people killed, combatants and civilians. Uh, there has been recently a cessation of hostilities and negotiations on a more permanent agreement, but it raises real issues for the United States. Uh, we are quick to and rightly label Vladimir Putin a war criminal, 
the International Criminal Court has basically uh, said that he should be marched to the docket, so to speak, in terms of his actions. But Abiy Ahmed uh, and President Isis, uh, who led this conflict against Tigray, uh, are still leading their countries. And uh, uh, now that the war has, uh, how should I say, paused, it raises real issues for the United States. How do we deal with countries led by leaders uh, that have perpetuated these kinds of acts and crimes, in this case, against their own people? And how do we deal with that in terms of post-conflict justice? And how do we deal with it in terms of U.S. policy? Do we restore our bilateral relations with Ethiopia? Uh, it hasn't been a proud moment in U.S. national security and foreign policy with respect to Ethiopia, but that's true of much of the international community. Uh, and that's an issue that we could spend an hour on. Uh, we certainly could. Abi Ahmed, didn't he win the Nobel Peace Prize? He did indeed. And shortly thereafter, he and his partner, uh, President Isais, as I say, uh, conspired uh, to begin the war against the Tigray region. And the leaders of Tigray, who uh, up until Abiy Ahmed, uh, since the early 1990s, had basically been, quote, the ruling class, unquote, uh, in many respects of Ethiopia. Uh, so there's a large history behind this conflict. It's one, as I say, that you and I could uh, at least attempt to unravel uh, over the course of another show. Uh, but there's other issues, too, the U.S.-China relationship, Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know the disaster for the 21st century, it would be a war over Taiwan. No question. It would destroy the Asia-Pacific region uh, militarily, economically, and have dramatic implications for our children and grandchildren. No question. Uh, so that's another hour program. You've got yeah. your work cut out for you, John. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good thing we have a show every Wednesday morning to where we can where we can tackle a new topic. Uh, I, I would uh, I would offer you the you know the last few minutes to cover whatever you want, but I think uh, I think that's probably going to be it. Uh, we actually ran a little overtime right now. We'll have to bring things to a close uh, for today. Uh, Steve Andreessen, you, you serve as the National Security Consultant to the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and you're also a professor at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, John, I just want to say thank you, and thank you for your service. Uh, I think you're the best informed person I know <laughs> on national security and foreign policy, in large part because of this program. It's a real public service, and I appreciate you doing it. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for, thank you. for making the drive down today. And that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. 95.1 The One.